Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. When I studied and read this passage in preparation for the message, one recurring thought I had was the biblical doctrine of the remnant. Not everyone who claims to be are the real deal. I've reflected upon that and, and pondered it over all the years of my pastoral ministry. When I think of what, what is real and what is not real about a, a church membership role. Southern Baptists are notorious, really, for hanging on to every number uh, on the roll. There's, there, are, there are no telling how many of those people are dead or just lost or attending another place that doesn't ask for a membership letter or anything. And I tried in the last several days to think about how many people I have had on the membership rolls of the five churches where I've pastored. And I reflected upon those who then were added to those roles during those tenures and I, I came up with a number of somewhere around over all the in 40 something years of, of the churches about 6,500 members total. And on the additions over the years whether they came by statement or by letter or by profession of faith and baptism, there would have been about another, I had this written down the best I could think of it, I'm not a numbers guy, but to reflect on it, to me fits the doctrine of the remnant in the scriptures, probably another uh, additional 12 to 1,500 over the years. And then I think back of average attendance, which didn't come anywhere close to those numbers, you understand. And I thought of how there's this constant flow of people in and out. There are always some who are always there. And I think to myself, what brought them? What anchored those who were just always there? 
And I kept going back to the doctrine of the remnant. Now people, I understand, people move from one location to another and it's right that they should carry their membership to a place, Bible-believing church, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ as doctrinally pure as possible. But what is it that connects people? Not to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. If you're connected to Christ, you are automatically part of the bride of Christ. And the perspective of brideship brings with it a very powerful relationship. I wouldn't like it very much if, if Pat's relationship to me was only casual. Here today, gone tomorrow, maybe back again the next day. We'd have a problem. <laughs> the, the illustration, the metaphor, the, the creation of relationship of man and wife is the very thing that's given to identify the relationship that Christ has with his church. And the church and that the church has with the Christ. So I think of how deeply serious I can't think of any relationship. Uh, there is no relationship greater than the relationship than the relationship between a believer and his or her savior. Savior. Someday, I don't know when, maybe soon, I hope. We will see Christ in all of his glory. You know, they had a hard time in the very early church, in the days of the apostle, the fading days. The last one was John. And Christ sent this message, brought this message to John, the last living apostle. Write what you see. Write the things that are and the things that are going to be. Write them. And what he saw then was something that people had to be reminded or they had to be taught. There were, what, 500 or so watched him as he ascended into heaven. He wasn't that much different in those 40 days post-resurrection, pre-ascension. But then something happened when he was going away. In John 17, he prayed that that glory that he had from before the world ever would be given, be back, given back to him, you know. And he was lifted up, the Bible says, eperthe. That doesn't mean that he just defied gravity. It means that he was exalted. Such that everyone was dumbfounded and they just were. The word was emblepo. Why do, you, why do you gaze here? Why are you gazing? It's like a deer in headlights. That was kind of this dumbfounded, you know, 
The psalmist indicates that there's a, a line of chariots on either side of the returning Christ, the chariots of angels. And this peculiar glory that belongs to God the Son, which was seen briefly, I believe, on the Transfiguration Mount, is now seen in fullness as he ascends. Why do you stand here gazing? This same Jesus, this one, will come again in like manner. And then he says to John, write what you see. There he was. Hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze girded about with a golden belt that shined brighter than the sun itself. Enthroned with an emerald rainbow that went around it. Unspeakable was the scene and he did the best he could. This is God the Son. God the Son. He accommodated himself to human flesh for that brief span of time to perform the appointed task which only he could do, namely to provide himself as the atonement for his own. What is there about that that becomes casual in a believer's relationship? I don't understand it. I never have understood it. What is so flippant and so casual about a personal relationship with God, the Son, whom we read in John 1 as the very one who spoke in Genesis 1, the creator and the consummator of all things, who made me in my mother's womb. And in the due course of time, having written my name in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, called me to himself according to his divine plan and has interceded in me in heaven through all of my life, not a day of which I have, a, I have I deserved. And if I die, will raise me up into glory and give me life forever. And give me the privilege of being a part of his bride? What thing about that is just casual? Take it or leave it. I don't understand it. Never have. The doctrine of the remnant. You see, people will give a plethora of reasons for stopping corporate worship, attending or whatever, not one of which is sufficient. Because we're not here for each other, we're not here for the preacher, we're not here for the music, all of that's part of it. But we are here for Christ. Now to me, this is 
powerfully written in this episode in verses 11 through 19. So let's look at it. You're going to have to prime my clicker here. It ain't clicking. Let's see. It is now. And it happened in the going up to Jerusalem. All right, this is that, you know, this is the last part of it. He's just weeks from the cross. He's on his way, but he's, he's sort of meandering and circling on his way, going to villages, preaching the gospel. Five miracles are recorded in the gospels during this time frame. This is the fourth of those five miracles. That he was passing through the midst of Samaria and Galilee, and on his entering into a certain village, ten leprous men who stood far off met him. Leviticus 13 and 14. A leper could not come within a certain distance of people. He had to stay away. Part of leprosy not only was the the loss of extremities, the sores that just chewed away their fingers, even their nose, their eyebrows. They became freaks at some point, but also it took a toll on the voice, the larynx. They lost their voice. They just couldn't talk. And the only thing that these 10 men have in common, because we're going to learn that one of them is a Samaritan, the only thing they had in common was their suffering, their pitiful condition. That's the only thing they had in common. Stood far off and met him. They lifted up their voice. Raspy voices combined perhaps in this moment of desperation could call out to the attention of Jesus. Lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, oh, listen, epistata, eleison, hamas, commander, master, epistata. You don't see that. You don't see people calling Jesus commander like this. It's a word that speaks of one who has notable authority. And can, if he will, exercise that authority. Master, commander, have compassion on us. They'd heard about Jesus rotting away, ostracized from society, from their families, from a synagogue, from any kind of worship, the temple, whatever. They only had this little colony, this little band of sufferers. Jesus is passing by. The one who heals. Commander, have compassion on us. Having seen them, he said to them, Go now and show yourselves to the priests. Now that's part of the law, Leviticus 13, 14, I think. Priests had the duty to inspect people. 
who had leprosy. You couldn't socialize, you couldn't get around anybody if the priest declared you were leprous. And it was the priest who had to declare you cleansed if it could ever happen. So Jesus says, go now and show yourselves to the priests. He doesn't say be healed, he just says go now. This is the only job they have in their lives is to at that moment stop. Now this was not good. This took some faith because the priests in their condition would have declared them unclean and would have further sentenced them to a worse condemnation. The only reason they would go would be to be declared cleansed, even though they were lepers. Go now and show yourselves to the priests. And it happened in their going, they were cleansed. All they had to do was turn in the direction of where the priests were. That's all they had to do. And just to turn in the direction to begin the journey cleansed them. They were cleansed by the one whom they had asked for compassion. One of them, now there were 10 guys, remember, 10 lepers. One of them, having seen he was healed, turned back. Glorifying God. The first thing he recognizes is that the presence of God is in Jesus Christ. Glorifying God with a loud voice. Now that tells us that he was completely healed. That tells us that whatever nubs there were, were restored, grown back. Because his larynx was now restored. And it says, and it says here that he turned back metaphones, megales, with a loud voice. Not a raspy, weak voice anymore. A loud voice of a zealous man who has, at least in this sense, been born again. It would have been like Naaman in the Old Testament. His flesh would have been like a baby's flesh. And his voice, like a great man's voice. He turned back. Now note three things. Glorifying God with a loud voice, number one. How do you glorify God? You ever ask that question? How do you ascribe glory to God? How do you glorify God? How do you do it? Well, the answer is, uh, Jesus, what, John 4, 
you worship God in truth and in spirit, that means that you, it ha, God can see your heart. You know, in Isaiah, he said to the people, you're giving lip service to me. It's not in your hearts. I'm not going to take your worship. It's worthless because it's not from your heart. Let me tell you, if we could ever realize the spiritual leper that we were, the nasty, depraved, fallen, sinful creature who we are without Christ. Deserving of nothing except hell. In Adam all die. Just death and then hell. Don't deserve anything. And then somehow, God calls us when he didn't have to call us. He loved, Bible, John says, he loved me before I loved him. He knew me before I knew him. He called me when I was dead. Paul writes, no man seeks after God. Not anybody. I wasn't saved because I was seeking God. I was saved because God sought me. Spiritual leper that I was. For no reason other than his grace has called me to himself and caused me, Peter says, caused me to be born again. So that when the father looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees his son. And when he considers his son on the cross, he sees me. And the penalty was paid. How do you glorify God? Adoration, heartfelt. Adoration. Singing to the Lord, singing to the Lord. Sometimes people sing to themselves. Sometimes people sing to the congregation. Sometimes the congregation sings to each other. The singing is to the Lord. Singing to the Lord. Communion is to glorify God. Giving is glorifying God. Giving thanks is glorifying God. Here's what this guy saw. He saw God. He saw himself as delivered from something he could never be delivered from on his own. He had to have divine help. And the only one who could help him was the master commander, Jesus. And he helped him. Then nothing else mattered to him but Jesus. Now what would have been the course of events, okay? They would have gone to the priest. The priest would have said, you're cleansed. And then they would have gone to the temple and made an offering and all. God 
was not in that temple. He left that place back in the time of Ezekiel. God wasn't in that temple. God was in the person of Jesus. One out of nine recognized it. One out of nine. Glorifying God with a loud voice. Secondly, he fell on his face at his feet. Heartfelt worship. To be in his presence and have an overwhelming sense of personal lowliness. Unworthiness. Why? Fell, at his face, fell, fell on his face at his feet. When, when Daniel saw him, he fell as a dead man. When Ezekiel saw him, he fell as a dead man. When John saw him, he fell as a dead man. There is something, when you have a, per, listen to me, when you have a personal relationship with Christ, it doesn't matter who else is around, it doesn't, when you have a personal relationship with Christ, you are overwhelmed with humility and adoration. And nothing about who you are or where you are or anything else matters. The only thing that matters is the presence of God who has acknowledged you and brought you to himself. Nothing else matters. And then I do these things out of, out of, a, out of an obligation, a sense of duty, a, a, a want to, a desire to sing to the Lord, to have communion with other believers, to pray, to listen to prayers, to engage in prayer, to give an offering. To be there corporately with other believers. You see, not everybody, not everybody has the same background in coming to Christ. It is a wonder to the grace of God about how each of us were called at a certain point in time in our lives and what circumstances we were in and how we were born again, how our minds through repentance, our lives were changed. And nothing else was the same, nothing. Drawn to worship and to worship with other believers. That's why I asked myself this question and I said those things at the beginning. What is it, what is it, that, what, what is it that is casual about a relationship with God Almighty? I don't, I, there is, there is, the Lord's the judge. I, I can't judge. But there are times I struggle with the lives of people. All, as a pastor, as a preacher, you know, you feel so unworthy. God Almighty, the people are there. There's this great need. And all I know to do is just to go through your word. That's all I know to do. to give to them the word, the proclaimed word from the written word which honors and introduces and defines the incarnate word. And so the question in my heart, 
through the years has always been, what about those thousands and thousands of people who just never came? I don't, I don't know what an excuse could be. I, I can't think of an excuse for a person to declare that he deserved or she deserved only to have a casual relationship with Jesus. In my mind, my mind tells me that I was satisfied with what I asked you to do and now I'm not going to have anything else to do. That's what happens to the other nine. How can the creator of everything come into your life and into your heart and not change you and flip you upside down and draw you from within by desire to be in his presence, by adoration and love and service and prayer and fellowship and testimony and thanksgiving. I've searched through the Bible. I can't find a sufficient reason why God's people are not truly God's people. Especially in this day in which we live, if ever the world cries out for a dedicated, sincere, born-again, bought-by-the-blood, Bible-believing, spirit-baptized Christian, it's today who will look a godless employer in the face and say, I'm not going to do that, or I will do this. Like Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin, whether or not I do the will of God, you be the judge. But I cannot help myself but to do the things that I'm commanded to do. One, realized, hey, I'm in the presence of God already. Glorifying God with a loud voice, fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. This guy had no rights. They wouldn't let him in the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of men, the court of the priests, the altar of cleansing and so forth, the holy place and the holy of holies. A leprous Samaritan. He had no hope. There was nothing for him, nothing. And he was a Samaritan. Now what follows should strike the heart of every believer. Then having answered, Jesus said, were there 10 cleansed? I'm not a numbers guy, but Jesus is. Wait a minute, if there were 10 of you guys, 
God. God is asking a rhetorical question. But where are the nine? Cleansed by the power of God, born again. Saved from the wrath of God. Chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Guided, led, filled by the Spirit. The privilege of sonship to be able to read with meaning the Word of God, which unbelievers cannot. Christ said through the writer to the Hebrews, now these were Hebrews who had become Christians, you understand that? Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together. Now the word assembling is not the word church, it's the word gathering. We get the word synagogue, synagogue, we get the word synagogue from that. They understood a synagogue, they understood that. It's a verb form here in Hebrews. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together who have this thing in common. Don't forsake that because it has replaced all of the other rituals and things that have foregone. We just come to Christ and together we worship him. We adore him. We offer all of this worship to him and we are told by the Lord Don't forsake that. Where are the nine? To look at the hundreds on the church roll and to consider whatever. I don't have my, I'm not even going to try to count. It looks like it'd be a bad day to try to anyway. Where are the other ones? Where are they? Where are the nine? They're going to an empty temple where there is no God who did not cleanse them. Some sort of personal satisfaction, religious ritual, rather than to be in the presence of God Almighty in Christ Jesus. Was there none found to give glory to God except this man of another race? In the Jewish sense, this most unworthy man. The the beautiful ending. And he said to him, not the other nine, this guy. And he said to him, rise up now and go forth. Your faith has saved you. Sesakane, 
from sozo, which means to save. Your translation may read healed or whatever. It's not what it is. It's the word for save. This guy was saved. And it revealed itself. His salvation revealed itself. Because of his expressed faith and the reality of his worship. Christ released him from his bondage, the bondage of the law. You don't have to go to the priest now. You don't have to go to the temple. Your faith is what saved you. Someday in heaven, across the millions of years, those of us who are saved will bump into this guy who has one of the greatest testimonies of everybody who will be there. Your faith has saved you. You see, out of that faith, what's automatic? Worship. Glorifying God, giving thanks. Adoration. Personal humility. It's nothing of me and it's all of you. His faith saved him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. If you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus. And confessing your sin, call out to him to save you. God will save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must be born again, Jesus said. Then Paul writes, sealed by the Spirit to the day of redemption. You can only come to God if he draws you, calls you. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never, ever cast him out. The will of the Father is this, he said, that I not lose a single one of them. You're coming to Christ. You don't come to church membership. You don't come to loyalty of a preacher or a, 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 a music program or a youth program or anything else. You come to Christ. And the reality of your faith will cause you to express your love for Christ from now on. Just a moment, we'll stand. In the act of standing, if you would come to Christ today, Give me the privilege and the opportunity to pray with you. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian and God leads you to come and be a part of this church. The only thing that I can claim about Shiloh is that whatever we do, it will be based on the Word of God. You're invited to come and be a part of who we are, if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven,
Bless this moment of invitation and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, okay, you come.